Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we get an update on COVID-19 in Colorado as case numbers and hospitalizations spike. Plus, we hear how a runner who's blind is participating in a 93-mile trail race. Athletics really converted this sense of disability into a sense of ability. And we learn about the targeted strategy scientists are taking to study drought along the Colorado River. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. This week, Governor Jared Polis warned Coloradans to expect the COVID-19 situation to get worse before it gets better. Cases and hospitalizations have been spiking across the state, driven by the highly contagious Delta variant. Governor Polis delivered the news at a Monday press conference where he and his staff were wearing masks for the first time in weeks. And on the same day, the city of Denver announced that it will require city employees, hospital workers, and teachers to be vaccinated. For more on the current state of COVID, we're joined by Michael Booth, a reporter for the Colorado Sun. Michael, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us, Aaron. Once the vaccines became widely available across the state, it sure felt like Colorado would be in a very different place than we are right now. Could you first give us a quick summary of where we are right now in terms of cases and, and what's driving this uptick? So I guess, should we start with the good news or the bad news? The good news is that we've now passed 70 percent plus in vaccination rates across Colorado. And that's obviously the most important statistic right now, the most important control factor we've got in where we're going with this. Bad news is that gap in the 30% who are not vaccinated is allowing Delta variant to spread. And so we've got now a few hundred people in the hospital and the governor has said that his goal all along has been to keep those numbers below 800, 900, 1,000 when we start to strain the whole state's hospital system for these kind of serious COVID cases. And so while we're not there yet, they want to make sure that people take the precautions to keep us from getting close to those warning signs again. You know, the governor and his staff were wearing masks in that press conference. Following CDC guidance, uh, they're now recommending that even vaccinated people wear masks in public, at least in indoor spaces, in areas with high rates of transmission. Does Colorado count as one of those high transmission areas? I think most of the country does at this point in terms of even if it's not high transmission, it's high risk. And so Colorado's vaccination rate is really not that much better than Florida. Florida is a few percentage points behind us, and yet Florida is now seeing strain in its hospital capacity. And so we can't get too smug and we can't say that just because we're doing a little bit better on vaccinations, we're not going to head into the problem. And I think that what is one of the other keys to this is the difference between the word you used, which is recommended, and another word, which is a mandate. And so the governor has so far all along in this tried as much as possible to allow state rules and laws to be different from the federal government requirements and the federal government guidelines, and in turn, tried to allow local areas some freedom in deciding whether they will meet the CDC requirements or 
strike off in their own direction a little bit. And so that has continued so that there is not a mask mandate reinstated yet in Colorado. They're recommending it. They wore the masks themselves, but now some local jurisdictions are going toward the mandate. And you're seeing that in the public schools, for example. We know most K-12 students will be returning to the classroom next week or the week after. On Tuesday, Denver Public Schools announced that students and staff will be required to wear masks indoors regardless of their vaccination status. But, of course, not all school districts will do that. What can you tell us generally about schools' health and safety guidelines? Schools are going forward with opening plans. A lot of them got back to it in the spring, and that seemed to go okay for the most part. There were some outbreaks, but not a huge number of cases, and they're moving forward on that. There will be vaccine mandates for some, as we now know, in Denver. Every teacher inside the boundary of the city and county of Denver, even if they don't work directly for the city, they now will be mandated to have the vaccine. There were likely to be a lot more mask requirements, especially for the younger children, There will still be things left to be decided about the distancing questions, and I know that they're working on that right now. The main question that parents have that is so far pretty much unanswerable is what is the timing of them getting the vaccine for their under 12 kids? And we've heard for a long time, people were assuming that we were talking mid to late September, there might be approval for that. Other people said, wait, they want to do some more testing at the federal level for heart inflammation and some other complications they have seen that have been minor, but they still wanna know more about. And so therefore it might be later in the fall or perhaps early winter. And of course, parents are dying to know, but there's no way to tell them definitively right now. Michael Booth covers health and health policy for the Colorado Sun. You will find links to their reporting at our website, KUNC.org. Michael, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Thanks a lot for your time. Coronavirus restrictions are also everywhere at the Tokyo Olympics. Between empty stands and consistent COVID testing, Olympians are making sacrifices. And the sacrifices made by Paralympians might be even more consequential. Last month, a two-time Paralympic swimmer with three gold medals to her name, Becca Myers, withdrew from the Games set to begin later this month. The deafblind athlete made the decision after she was denied bringing a personal care assistant, thus demonstrating that often the biggest obstacle for athletes with disabilities is simply accommodation. But with proper resources, there's no telling what athletes with disabilities can achieve. Earlier this week, Dan Berlin, a Fort Collins-based entrepreneur and philanthropist, embarked on a 93-mile trail race around Mount Rainier on the Wonderland Trail in Washington. Dan, who is blind, is running with two sighted guides from August 1st through the 4th. They represent the nonprofit Team C Possibilities, which offers scholarships and mentoring for students who are visually impaired. And Dan and one of those sighted guides, Brad Graff, join us here today. Welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here with you. Thank you. Dan, I want to start with you. You're no stranger to ambitious athletic feats. You were the first blind runner to cross the Grand Canyon and back nonstop. This 93-mile circumnavigation of the Wonderland will be your longest race to date. How did you decide to take this behemoth of a race on? What was your motivation? I love taking on these really tough challenges and surrounding myself with great ambitious people like Brad and Charles, our other guide on the trip, is really the inspiration. These guys come up with some just crazy ideas of things to try. And in this case, this was Charles's idea to come up with this 93-mile run around Mount Rainier in three days. And it took me about 30 seconds to agree yes to his thought on this one. 
But it's definitely the toughest thing we've ever taken on. Brad, I actually want to step back and ask about your role in this. For people who aren't familiar, what is site guiding? And um, how did you get into this? And how do you help support Dan during races? So I'm an outdoorsy person. But when I'm out, you know, guiding Dan on one of these, these things, it's a totally different experience than if I'm out for a hike with like my wife or by myself or whatever. You have all this responsibility and you're looking for rocks and, you know, ledges and cliffs. And one of the things that's really cool about guiding with Dan is, first of all, he's just a really laid back, easygoing guy, but he kind of teaches you or tells you what to do. And, oh yeah, do that. So he's such a, just a great person to, to do these things with, but, you know, you can't really let your mind wander, you know, cause you, know, you don't want Dan to do a face plant, which has, has happened before. We don't talk about that much, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have all that. Um, so anyway, it's just, it's a very different thing. Dan, I want to go back just a bit about when you first got into running and athletics and when you started competing, when you do that, are you focused on a personal goal or is there a larger message you hope to send? I moved to Colorado about 14 years ago. And my first couple of years here, I struggled a little bit, really was struggling with, with the sense of disability that my blindness was bringing on. I discovered running about two years after being here, and I decided to take it on and signed up for a half marathon. It just started from there. Athletics really converted this sense of disability into a sense of ability especially as I moved on to marathons and then triathlons and then the ultra running, it really changed my dynamic and my view of myself from one of being disabled to one of being able to do some of these things that were really challenging and really hard. And that carried through into my work life. It carried through into my family life. I spent a lot of time thinking about what type of role model do I want to be for my children. You know, I had two young children when I moved to Colorado and a fantastic wife and family that were very supportive along the way. So it was just this perpetual cycle that I think my work life, my family life, and my athletic life all benefited. Tell us a bit about Team C Possibilities. When did you found the organization and what was the mission behind it? Well, it was really on the Grand Canyon. It was just us out doing this crazy challenge. And then we had such a good experience and were able to raise some awareness and raised a very small amount of money, actually a blind foundation in, in Colorado, that we as a team were thinking, how can we make this more uh, formalized? So in early 2015, we went through the steps of becoming a nonprofit and you know, Dan drove a lot of that and changing it from going out and just doing a hard door challenge to actually helping blind children and students. It was a way for us to take on these challenges around the world while also going to speak at schools for children who are blind or traditional schools that have blind children attending them and really be able to start sharing concepts of what can be done. And we've taken that over the past several years and expanded into a scholarship program where we now fund 18 scholars and we fund scholarship. We provide mentorship with top professionals who are blind all around the world and also really a peer-to-peer -peer support network so that they can chat with each other. Because many of them, they're significantly high-performing students, you know, very smart, tremendous problem solvers, really talented. They're often the only blind student in their class and sometimes in their college. 
we take on these challenges and we look at that. I, I, I parallel that often to taking on any difficult challenge with a disability, you know, whether it's taking on a college level calculus class that's highly visual dependent. It's not that students don't do it. They just need to figure it out. They, they hit a problem, they rely on others, they problem solve, and they figure out a way to, to get through it and really maximize their own potential in the process. Well, I want to wrap up by talking about changes for the future. As we mentioned, there's no doubt that when provided with proper accommodation, people with disabilities can accomplish pretty much anything. So how can this be changed? What can we do to make athletics more accessible for people with disabilities? I would say one of the things that we can really do is create more role models of success out there. There's so few examples of people with disabilities in leadership roles. I mean, when I was CEO of Rodell and for a you know 15-year career prior to that in a, a major international corporation, I don't think once I was ever in a meeting room or a boardroom or an executive meeting with anyone else who was blind. So that's just an example of how I believe what we need to do is start showing more examples of ability out there in society. We just need to destroy the notion that because somebody is in a wheelchair or is blind or is deaf, is not capable of doing significant things in the world. And really what we get down to, the best way to overcome that is to just show it. Dan Berlin is a runner, philanthropist, and entrepreneur in Fort Collins, and Brad Graff is a site guide. The two are currently on day three of their 93-mile trail race in Washington. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Seven years ago, a pulse of water on the Colorado River at the U.S.-Mexico border temporarily reconnected it to the Pacific Ocean. Scientists used the so-called pulse flow to study what plant and animal life returned to the desiccated delta along with water. Armed with that knowledge, and even with persistent drought, they're trying a new and more targeted strategy this year. KUNC's Luke Runyon has more. It's just after sunrise in the Colorado River's dry estuary in Mexico, and Tomas Rivas is hunched over, using his fingers to comb through small bits of wood. What are you looking for, Tomas? Uh, Jumping spider. Jumping spider? Yeah. Rivas is an ecologist with the conservation group the Sonoran Institute, and we're at the place where the river and the ocean used to meet and mix. The exposed salt flats are home to jumping spiders, tiny turquoise fiddler crabs, and hardy species of salt grass. The day we visited, it reached 120 degrees with a cloudless sky. These are harsh conditions here. Rivas says this part of the delta used to be home to a tidal bore, a wave that forms as the incoming tide rushes against the freshwater river. In Spanish, here we, the people, locally call uh, burro, el burro, for the tidal bore. It even had a sound, he says, of crashing, rumbling water. The people say, ahí viene el burro. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like uh, the donkey's coming, no? <laughs> because the Colorado River is so overused in the U.S., the burro hasn't charged in the delta in decades. Rivas's group is working to bring water back into this part of the estuary and study it. It won't fully revive the tidal bore, but it will be enough to help restore riverine habitat. For Mexico, living uh, with a dead river has been, um, I'll say, sort of a wound. Jennifer Pitt runs the Colorado River program for the National Audubon Society. 
We're upstream of the estuary, next to an irrigation canal, where water diverted near the U.S.-Mexico border makes a hard left turn back into the river's channel. And this is a little bit of repair. For a few months this spring and summer, portions of the Colorado River Delta are flowing again. But unlike 2014's pulse flow, this release of water is targeted to restoration sites. And we're using the irrigation canals to bypass the dry reach and drop the water into the river at the point where the scientists tell us it will do the most good. The Colorado River is grabbing national headlines as water shortages take hold. Hot and dry conditions are coming home to roost in its reservoirs, dropping the two biggest to record lows. Even in a dry year like this one, Pitt says both the U.S. and Mexico have agreed to set aside water just for the environment. And if we don't figure out at this moment how to support the river itself and all of nature that it supports, I fear that we lose them permanently. Not everyone agrees. Some skeptical city leaders and farmers in Mexico say any unused water is wasted. I am kayaking on the Colorado River in its delta in Mexico. There's dragonflies that are sort of skipping across the water. You see birds up in the trees. There's a beaver dam just upstream of here. This is 1% of the water that's coming from the U.S., and it, it's building so much into the ecosystem. That's Rocio Torres. She runs the Sonoran Institute's Colorado River Delta Restoration. For me, that means, and for our team, that there's hope, right? Torres says these targeted flows are less flashy and harder to explain than the pulse flow. That event galvanized communities in the region, she says, and it built a base of support from water officials in both countries who agreed to set aside a small amount of water, not for human use. I think that's the way human beings, uh, we learn, we mess things up. We realize we shouldn't have done that. And she says, bringing it back happens little by little. I'm Luke Runyon in Sonora, Mexico. This story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, produced by KUNC with support from the Walton Family Foundation. And this is also the last of a series of stories that KUNC's Luke Runyon brought to us from a recent reporting trip along the Colorado River. Luke joins us now to talk more about the trip and his takeaways from this particular project, as well as his four years of covering the Colorado River Basin. Hi, Luke. Hi, Erin. I want to start by asking you about this trip that you recently did. You set off down the length of the Colorado River to kind of get into what all of this looks like in the real world for the people who use this water. The purpose of the trip really was to put a finger on the pulse of this watershed in a really critical time. This year has brought a lot of attention to the Colorado River Basin because we've been seeing a lot of historic firsts. The two biggest reservoirs in the country, Lake Mead and Lake Powell, which are both on the river, they hit low points since they were first filled. Drought conditions in the West are the worst on record, really widespread, like you said. A shortage declaration on the river is imminent. And so I wanted to drive the length of the river, all 1,400 miles of it, (laughs) to hear from people who are affected. To start, I visited with ranchers in western Colorado who are seeing their pastures dry up, essentially, Mm. due to drought. And they're planning to sell off about half of their herd this year, joining lots of other small-time ranchers 
who are doing the same this year because of feed shortages. And you stopped in one of the bigger cities on the river in Las Vegas, too? Yeah, municipal use of water in the basin is is a hot topic. And Las Vegas has this reputation for being a real water hog on the Colorado River. But you talk to leaders there and they're actually doing a lot to rein in their use as they see the Colorado River decline with higher temperatures and drier conditions in the headwaters. And officials with big water utilities there say that, you know, other major cities in the West should take notice of what they're doing in order to live within their means. This year, the Nevada legislature banned so-called non-functional turf in the Las Vegas Valley, and that would be ornamental grass that you see in medians that uh, line sidewalks in front of business parks. And I went and visited with someone who's going to benefit from the Valley's large-scale lawn removal, an artificial turf installer. Uh, His his name is Ken Foss, and he runs Synthetic Lawns of Las Vegas. I met with him in front of a home in Henderson, Nevada, where his team was swapping out real grass for the fake kind, and he says business is up. I think a larger, a much larger percentage of people are taking part in doing what they need to do to conserve water here now. The only downside, in my opinion, it would be if they're so concerned why they keep building houses. Population growth is something that came up again and again on this trip. People feel like there's just not enough water to sort of have it all in the region. And that really feels like it's top of mind right now because of the shortage declaration happening in August. Explain what that is. So this is a declaration that comes as Lake Mead outside Las Vegas declines. If the lake is below a certain threshold in an August report by the federal government, then users in Arizona, Nevada, and Mexico have to use less the following calendar year. And right now, Lake Mead is below that threshold. And really, the shortages are going to hit Arizona farmers first. I visited with John Boltz in Yuma, Arizona, right on the U.S.-Mexico border. He grows melons, hay, cotton, durum wheat. And while he's not going to be hit directly by the shortage declaration this summer, he sees belt tightening around water use as something that's inevitable in Arizona. Right now, we've been living, you know, the land of milk and honey sort of thing. You can continue to build, grow and expand, build it they'll come, that sort of thing. In a desert, you're nothing if you don't understand that you do have finite resources and uh, water, water certainly being one of them. And he says that if everyone's planning on just drying up agriculture to meet the region's long-term water needs, don't expect that to happen without a lot of pushback from farmers and ranchers and food costs would rise if that were the case. Now, Luke, I know when you go on these reporting trips, you're all business, but I wanted to ask you about a kind of a diversion that you took from this official itinerary going down the Colorado River. Yes, this trip uh, took place in one of the early season heat waves that we've seen this summer. It was so, so hot, (laughs) like above 115 degrees And while I was driving from Page, Arizona to Las Vegas, there's this spot on the Colorado River called Lee's Ferry. You can actually drive up to the river, which is one of the few places that you can do that in Canyon Country. And it's where a lot of Grand Canyon River trips launch from. And I decided, because it was so hot, I would just go for a swim. That felt incredible. 
And Lee's Ferry is in this beautiful area in Marble Canyon. And because the water is coming out of Lake Powell just upstream of Lee's Ferry, it is really, really cold water. And on a day where it is baking hot, that dip felt so good. I know many reporters immerse themselves in their work, but you've really taken this to the next level. So (laughs) if you'll pardon the pun. What stands out to you the most as you look back on on what you've reported on? I think one of the things that gets lost in the conversation about water in the West is just how beautiful of a river the Colorado River is. And when we talk so much about water supply and demand for human use in cities and on farms, we lose a little bit that this river supports wildlife and plant life, too. It's not just a conduit for cities and farmers. It is this amazing ecosystem in the desert. It's really the only reliable water source in this incredibly arid reach of the country. And the river is just uh, such a treasure. And I was glad that on this trip, I was able to see some places that I had never seen before and visit ones that I had visited before and, um, and learn about a different part of the river than I did before. Some people know this already, but you are embarking on an exciting new opportunity. So tell us what you'll be doing. I am stepping away from daily reporting for the next year, and that's to be a Ted Scripps Fellow at the University of Colorado in Boulder. The fellowship focuses on environmental journalism, so I'm still staying in journalism. And I'll be taking classes and working on a long-term reporting project over the course of that fellowship. In the interim, Alex Hager is joining the KUNC team to cover Colorado River issues while I'm away. He's coming to us from Aspen Public Radio. Listeners will probably even recognize his voice. We've had a few of his stories on. So stay tuned for more water coverage from Alex. Luke Runyon has been reporting on the Colorado River Basin for the past four years. Really excited for what you're doing next. Thanks, Aaron. That's our show for today. I'm Aaron O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. 